The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 23, 32-43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to to Christ. Christ. Thanks, Claire Beth. Twice today, nailed it both times. Thank you so much. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you. And uh, we are just diving right into the latter portion of our current series called Encounters with Christ. And uh, I'll start this way. If you're considering Christianity, consider this. One of the things that Jesus said is that you're going to need to count the cost uh, if you want to follow me. Because in this world, you will have trouble. And the more tethered you are to me, the more your trouble will increase. I'm not here to make things more comfortable and easy and smooth. Actually, a byproduct of following me is things will become more difficult. And in in the the Beatitudes, which is this section of of sort of Christian uh, character virtues and and the description of life in Christ uh, right there at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5 through 7, uh, Jesus says that there are going to be people who persecute you, who injure you, who malign you, who say all kinds of false things about you, who criticize you. And, and back then, uh, people would, like the, the three people on the cross right now, people would actually be tortured uh, and uh, imprisoned and, and even subject to death sentences if, uh, if by virtue of their faith commitments, they uh, fell out of line with, with totalitarian states. It, it actually exists, that, that dynamic, around the world today. But in our world, uh, assassination is typically more uh, in terms of character, assassinating somebody's character, uh, especially in a digital uh, world and, and, and so on. And uh, uh, as a, a public person, uh, it's very helpful to have uh, other public people who are fielding criticism well, and you know, every pastor, just like every teacher, is a public person, writers, etc. And uh, one of my sort of older, uh, older in life models for this is, is Tim Keller, who's the founder of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, a sister church of ours. Uh, and uh, 
Tim actually wrote a, uh, an essay several years ago on how to receive criticism of your views, and it was targeted especially to young, younger ministers, and in there he says, among other things, that he is more criticized and more pilloried for views that he does not have than he is for views that he does. Uh, you know, hence what Jesus said about people saying false things about you, false critical things, not just true critical things. And what he says is, when this happens, don't, young minister, don't, young teacher or public person, don't fall into smugness. Don't look at the other person like they're pathetic. Don't look at them with contempt. Instead, find ways to pray for your critic. Find ways to, to warm your heart toward your critic uh, through prayer. And while you're at it, consider looking for kernels of truth that might be in there somewhere in the, in the criticisms, because that, if you, if you find a kernel of truth, will give you an opportunity to, to, to run to Jesus, to, to submit, uh, you know, whatever legitimate is in there to the Lord and experience His grace all over again. So, another older example uh, to me is uh, a man named Bob Goff, who's a writer and does speaking and things like that. And Bob gets trolled on Twitter a lot. Now, if you are over the age of 40, you, don't, you have no idea what I just said uh, or what I meant by what I just said. So, if you're older than 40, to be trolled means to be criticized in, you know, 280 wor uh, characters or less, you know, a couple of sentences, to be criticized by a complete stranger, usually for something that you're not culpable for. Okay, so that's what a troll is. And Bob gets trolled all the time. And his method of responding to trolling is this. He'll, he'll, he'll go to the person's Twitter account and he'll scroll through their feed and he'll look for maybe some wounds or some themes of, of sorrow in the person's life and then he'll pray for that area of that person's life. And then he will send them, uh, if he can find their address, he will mail to them a cake pop with a little note, a little handwritten note. And... Um, you know, this is what you could call taking the high road, you know, both, both instances, right? That's what Jesus teaches us to do uh, in a manner of speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, to take the high road when people uh, oppose you. And uh, Jesus, though, in this encounter doesn't just teach about taking the high road. He, he takes it to a whole new level and, and gives us the ultimate demonstration of taking the high road. And, and so there are three dying men here who've been crucified by the Roman state. And uh, we'll call them the angry cynic, the new believer, and the merciful savior. And we'll just go through them one by one, starting with the angry cynic. So these three are nailed on crosses together. They're all bleeding out. And um, if, if you look at the words uh, in the original language around this account, uh, not only in this text, but in the parallel text in the other gospels, uh, you see that it is not only Jesus who is being punished by the Roman state as an innocent man. It suggests that these two others are also innocent with respect to what they've done with regard to Rome. Because the words used, especially in the other parallel accounts which tell the same story, are words that can be translated freedom fighters. If you think uh, of maybe William Wallace from Braveheart, or if you go back in history and, and think about others who spoke truth to power, to, to tyrannical, unjust uh, uh, systems of power. You think of Wilberforce, who, 
who stood up to Parliament uh, and to the crown on behalf of, of the emancipation of, of slaves. Or you think of, of Oskar Schindler, who stood up to the German Nazi regime uh, to protect and provide sanctuary for, for Jews who were, who, who were threatened, uh, whose lives were threatened under Hitler's uh, leadership. Or you can think of, of King, who, who stood up against American white supremacy during his day. And then you go further back, you go to the, the biblical days, and you, you see Moses speaking truth to power in Egypt. When he says to the, the tyrannical Egyptian pharaoh, you've got to let the Jewish people go. You've got to let my people go. Or if you go to Daniel and, 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 and you see that Daniel and his friends are, 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 have been taken in and exiled as, as slaves in, in the tyrannical Babylon under uh, the tyrant Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar insisted, like, uh, like the Caesar did, like the, the emperor did in Rome, that all the citizens worship him uh, upon pain of death if they did not. And of course, Daniel, as well as his friends, said, uh, "We're sorry, but we have we have first loyalty to to the King of all kings, to the Lord, to Yahweh Himself. Throw us in a fiery furnace if you have to, toss us in a den of lions if you have to, but we will not budge on this. You are not our first loyalty. You are our second loyalty behind our true King." And of course, Nebuchadnezzar did throw Daniel in a lion's den and, and his three friends into a fiery furnace. The prophets are, are always speaking truth to power as well and calling unjust and oppressive kings to account. And so you've got what appears to be a threefold injustice here at the hands of Rome. Because these two guys, what they're guilty of in the eyes of the state is speaking out against the unjust and abusive practices of the state. And so there's also injury. They're crucified. This is the most humiliating, most physically injurious and, and brutal way to put somebody to death uh, in the first century. And, and then they add insult to the injury uh, by humiliating them publicly. It says that they took Jesus' clothes off of him, they stripped him, they scoffed at him, they mocked him, they put sour wine or vinegar in his mouth. And, and uh, there also appear, according to several commentaries, to be an anti-Semitic tone uh, beneath the way that they crucified him because, you know, they put this sign above him, King of the Jews, that was partially to mock Jesus and that was partially to mock the Jews. You know, this, this little sort of uh, ethnic and religious minority in Rome who were of no account in the eyes of the centurions, and so they're, they're just mocking everybody, even as they injured them. And so this cynic uh, you know, who talks to Jesus and says, well, if you're the Messiah, why don't you save yourself and us? It's not hard to understand how he could get to that place. You know, he's a cynic on death row, feeling like he doesn't deserve to be where he is. You know, and he, he essentially says to Jesus, you don't belong up here. Uh, this other guy doesn't belong up here. I don't belong here. And so, um, so why don't you do something about it? If you are who you say you are, if you are who your followers are saying you are, then this is the perfect opportunity for you to prove it, don't you think? Save yourself and us. Free the innocent, punish the guilty. That's how a good world is supposed to work, Mr. Messiah. You know, for centuries, the Jewish community had this vision of what the Messiah, what the Savior would look like and what he would come to do. And, and, and somewhere along the way, they got it in their minds that Whoever the Messiah was, he would destroy violence with violence. He would be a military hero, he would be a political leader, and he would win. 
at the Darwinian game in, in, in a similar way that, that the Romans at this time were winning at the Darwinian game of sort of the, you know, the strong survive and the weak get crushed. And they might have also had a memory of what theologians call the imprecatory prayers uh, in the Psalms, which they would pray on a regular basis. Imprecatory prayers are prayers for harm to come, for injury to come to those who are injuring you. Here are a few excerpts from Old Testament imprecatory prayers. May the Lord see and avenge. Babylon, blessed shall he be who takes your infants and dashes them against the rock. Lord, take vengeance for me on my persecutors. Bring on them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. Don't forgive their iniquity. Don't blot out their sin from your sight. Deal with them in anger. Let me see your vengeance upon them. Torture them, Lord, and give me a front row seat. But what they seem to have gotten amnesia about was the most explicit messianic strategy that was laid out for them in their Old Testament scriptures right there in the heart of Isaiah chapter 53, which is uh, this, this poem and prophecy about the Messiah or the king who would come as the suffering servant. And it says in Isaiah 53 about this coming Messiah that he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that would bring us peace would be laid upon him. He would be led as a sheep to the slaughter. He will be numbered with the transgressors, and by his stripes or by his wounds, we are healed. And so, so how do you put all this together? The imprecatory prayers, the prayers that, that are born of anger, that are born of hurt, that are born of, of being injured, and this picture of, 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 a, of a self-sacrificing, suffering Servant, I, th I think it looks like this. It's in the Psalms and it's in Ephesians. Be angry. This is where the Bible legitimizes anger and pain and sorrow that we feel when things are wrong and when people are treated wrongly. Be angry and sin not. There's a way to be angry and, 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 and to do so without retaliating in vengeance. You know, Psalm 139, I think, gives a hint, maybe, of where Jesus would ultimately take the imprecatory prayers of the Old Testament. You know, because King David prays one. He says, I loathe, I hate the enemies with a complete hatred. But the very next verse, after, right after he says this, is, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Maybe this is a hint of where Jesus is taking us ultimately with anger and with things like victimhood, is forgiveness. You know, a new day that, that, that's coming perhaps where, where instead of praying that your enemies would be tortured, love them. And where the cynic also seems perhaps to miss the mark is that his premise is all wrong. He's got this if-then way of thinking about God. And it goes like this. If you are God, then you'll do this. And if you don't do this, then you must not be God or you're not the kind of God that I want to be associated with. And so 
So what we see him doing in his pain is placing conditions on his worship. If you bring relief for us and retribution toward them, I will follow you. I will perhaps even worship you. But there's this reality going on where he's looking to Jesus to serve as a means toward his end. You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is one of our confessional statements in our particular uh, heritage or tradition, says that for the Christian, the chief end of a human being is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But here you've got the cynic on the cross who's speaking as if the chief end of God should be to give me the life that I want to meet my felt needs and to keep me safe because taking up a cross is stupid. That's how he's coming across here, that this whole notion of sacrifice, of, 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 of winning your enemy by dying for your enemy, stupid, foolish, absurd. You know, what the cynic wants is not a Lord, but a personal assistant and a guarantor that he will get his vision of the good life given to him. If you're the Messiah, if you're really God, then you're going to get us out of this mess, you're going to put them in their place, and you're going to give us the good life. If you were God, that's what would happen. But because you're not doing these things, then you must not be God. So, uh, nine hours ago, um, this, this, this text was put to application for me, right? I have a broken brain. Uh, some of you know this. Not all of you know this, but I have a broken brain. And the primary way that my broken brain manifests its brokenness is through insomnia. The past five 24-hour periods, I have averaged about two and a half hours of sleep per 24-hour period. That's, that's night attempts at sleep and naps in the day combined, okay? So I have one of those brains that, that, that like a computer won't shut off even when you tell it to. When you tell it to shut off, it won't shut off. It just keeps, um, you know, shining in your face. That's, that's my brain. And so last night was one of those nights, and the second time I got out of bed, it was, it was about, you know, two in the morning-ish, and, and my wife, who's incredibly empathetic, you know, comes down, and, you know, she's a little teary-eyed, you know, for my struggle, and she starts praying over me, and as she's praying, I'm just looking at the ceiling like, okay, out of respect for her, I'm not going to say anything. But then she, you know, finishes her prayer, and I just look over her, and I, I say, you know what? I, I'm not going to pray for this anymore. I've been praying for this for almost two years now. I've seen some of the best doctors in the world on this, and nothing's happening. God wants me not to sleep. And what I really was feeling, though, because God maybe doesn't want me to sleep. I mean, there are people that, that there are thorns in the flesh that happen, you know, 2 Corinthians 12, so we can know God better. But what I was really feeling in my heart was, God doesn't care. He just doesn't care. This was just nine hours ago. Who am I? You know, there's the angry cynic, but there's also the new believer. And, and I think, I'm going to play the optimist here, I think I'm more the new believer than I am the angry cynic. Because if you go to the parallel passages in the other texts, you see that it is both of these men that are mocking Jesus from their respective crosses. Somewhere along the way, this man 
comes around and recognizes what's going on. But only a few minutes before, he was also mocking Jesus and speaking with words of contempt toward Jesus, just like his, his you know, fellow um, freedom fighter. And, but, but at some point, he, he comes to understand that the main thing that, that, that I should not be asking for or expecting from God is relief or to be spared from my pain and injury and death as much as I just need to ask him if I can be remembered. That's his only request. Will you remember me, sir? And, and, and in the process, he turns to, to the cynical uh, guy on the cross and he says, do you not fear God? Isn't that crazy? Like just a few minutes ago, he was doing the same thing, and now all of a sudden he lectures the guy. It's like it's like the kid who you know you know tattles on on their on their sibling. Like so and so is not closing their eyes while we pray. Well, you just gave yourself away. <laughs> same things going on here. Like like, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly so. For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. What deeds is he talking about? He's saying we deserve the death penalty, not for speaking truth to power. We don't deserve what Rome is doing to us, but we do deserve what God is doing to us. He doesn't. See, because the wages of sin is death. We are sinners. He is not. Don't you understand? You know, in parallel passages, Matthew 27, Mark 15, both men are insulting him. This one pleads for mercy. Minutes after insulting him, his admission of guilt is not an admission of civic guilt. His admission of guilt is an admission of cosmic treason. And what this man realizes is that the thing I ought to desire most and ask for first, it's not a bad thing to ask for relief. Ask for relief if you're hurting. Do. God loves you. He wants to give you good things. He does. But ask for something else first. And the first thing he asks for is not immediate relief, but to go on the eternal record Remember me in your kingdom. You know, the, the cynic says, if you take my pain away, then I will follow you. The believer says, I'll even live with pain if necessary, if that's what I have to do to follow you well. You know, one commentary said that the, the cynical guy is more concerned about saving his skin than he is about saving his soul, uh, just as the, the believer is more concerned about his soul being saved than, than his skin being saved. And he recognizes, you know, he, he has this awakening where he, where he realizes finally that, that, that to forfeit Jesus and get your version of the good life is actually hell. That's how Romans 1 describes the wrath of God. You get what you want without Jesus. It's hell. But on the flip side, you forfeit your version of the good life without Jesus. In order to walk with Jesus, you've got paradise. Regardless of what it is that you're going through, you are an heir of paradise right now. 
You know, to the second man, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And by the way, the emphasis is not on paradise. You know, all you can eat buffets without gaining weight forever. You know, and, you know, your work will be fun. You know, and, and, and you know, you'll, you'll be in love all the time. And you will. You'll be part of the bride of Jesus. And, and, and you will just completely be smitten with him all the time forever. But th- actually, his emphasis isn't on that stuff. Even that stuff, is one- though that stuff is wonderful, you know, streets paved with gold and all that kind of thing. His emphasis is on the with me part. Because there is no paradise without the with me part. Jesus as the end, not as a means. Jesus as your emotional non-negotiable. You know, when Martin Lloyd-Jones became a preacher... You know, he'd been a, a very successful physician prior to that uh, and ran in elite circles and, and uh, you know, was highly esteemed as a doctor. And, you know, his first uh, ministry assignment was at a little church, blue-collar church on the shores of Wales. And he took a 90% salary cut, uh, and he was essentially politely written off by his, his elite social circles. They, they, they labeled him a religious fanatic and just kind of dismissed him as a friend. And, and a, re- a reporter at some point later did an interview with Lloyd-Jones and said, you know, you left this life for this life. I, was it worth it? And Lloyd-Jones' response was, let me get something straight with you. I gave up nothing, and I gained everything. And he wasn't talking about giving up a doctor to become a, a preacher. He was talking about giving up this, this, you know, status, this vision of a good life, money, this vision of the good life for a tight relationship with Jesus Christ. And for him, it's going to look differently for other people, but for him, that's what it, that's what it took. It's like, I gave up nothing, and I gained everything. Which brings us, lastly, to the merciful Savior There is not a shred of vitriol detectable in Jesus, even though all of this stuff is unjustly being done to him. He prays with respect to the crowds, some of whom are saying crucify him, others of whom are doing the crucifying. His prayer is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And in this, I I don't know which is a greater demonstration of power, the resurrection from the dead or this prayer. You know, Oscar Schindler once said that true power is when you have every justification and also the ability to crush your enemies, and you don't. And that's precisely what happens. You know, Jesus is transitioning the people of God from dash their babies' heads on rocks and give me a front row seat to, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and bless those who injure you. The cynic is unmoved by this. The believer says, okay then, can I have some of that mercy? Can I get in on that? And Jesus says, you better believe you can. Remember you when when I come into my kingdom, truly today, right now, you're going to be with me in paradise today. Zero waiting period. You know, think of the most recent, most shameful thought that you've had, the most shameful, uh, you know, thing that you've said, the most shameful thing, and the most recent thing that you've done. And take this in for a second. Marinate in this. Jesus will not hold it 
against you, even for a second. All it takes is for your heart to turn in his direction and say, will you remember me? And, and he'll respond, I've always known you. You finally came around. Here we go. You know, over the course of years in ministry, I've asked my wife at certain points in time if she thinks I'm a fraud. Do you think I live up to the things I preach? Well, of course you don't. Of course you don't. Nobody does. Only Jesus lives up to the things that he preaches. When I have those moments, she says, you need to learn what Jack Miller taught us years ago. Cheer up because you are much worse than you think. And God's love is infinitely greater than you ever dare to hope. Today. No penance required, no purgatory required. You don't have to give him any, you don't have to give him the cash in your in your pocket. You don't have to do a thing. But say, hey, will you remember me? And his answer is yes. With me. You know, here's something to consider as we approach the Lord's table here in a second, to remember Him, to do this in remembrance of Him. You know, the Princeton scholar Charles Hodge says, you know, he has this lovely, um, you know, take on passages like this. He says, when, if you're a defendant in the court, what do you look like to the judge and to the jury and to the court? What you look like is whatever your attorney looks like. If your attorney is good, you're going to look good. If your attorney is a train wreck, you're going to look like a train wreck. You're completely lost. You're completely bound up in whoever it is that your advocate is. If she wins, you win. If she looks stupid, you look stupid to the judge and the jury in the court. And Hodge goes on. He says, the minute you become a Christian, you don't just get your sins washed away in some general way. And then you're on your own to deal with the rest of your life. When you become a Christian, you're with him. You're bound up. Your reputation, your identity is bound up in who he is. God will never treat you as your sins deserve because he's already treated Jesus as your sins deserve. And in the same way, he's treating you as Jesus' perfection deserves. So come to the table. You see, you touch, you smell your defense attorney, your, your sweet-smelling advocate. This will be a taste of paradise, by the way. If you want a taste of paradise, right there. That's why we do it every week. I wish we could do it every day. Paradise. In one sense, it's a temporary holding place for the soul until the body is resurrected to die no more and the two are reunited again in perfection and beauty and glory. So in one sense, that's what paradise is. But in another sense, and the, the, the uh, translators of the Septuagint, which was the first uh, Greek translation of, of the, uh, the ancient Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, the word paradise is interchangeable with the Garden of Eden, the place of delight, the presence in the face of God, where you know, the worst, the very worst day there with God will make the very best day here without God seem like torture and misery, because in the grand scheme of things, that's actually what it is. Even if you're getting everything you want, your wildest dreams, if it's without Jesus, it's ultimately going to be revealed as torture. And so who are we with? May it be the second man. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven,
Teach us what it means to put things in the right order. To put our prayers for relief and to put our prayers for healing and to put our prayers for some sleep, to put our prayers for, 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 for any of these sorts of things in their appropriate context. And you want us to ask for these things. Lord, you tell us you're a good father. If we ask for an egg, you're not going to give us a scorpion. If we ask for bread, you're not going to you know, give us a pile of rocks or a pile of dirt. You know, you're going you're to love us. You delight to give us good things. But Lord, teach us what to ask you for first. And that is that we would be remembered. And we thank you that when we ask that question, your answer is always yes, and your answer is always yes now. Thank you, Lord, that even better than having every bit of our vision of the good life with you on the periphery or outside the picture is so much inferior to having you and not having any of that. Hallelujah, all we have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is our life. May it be so. In your name, amen.